0: Our scripture this morning comes from 2 Corinthians 13, and I'll be reading verses one to 10. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past, and to all the the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone, since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or you do not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you may be made complete. For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up, and not for tearing down lord jesus may we serve you from a genuine faith in jesus name amen thank you brother
1: good morning everybody enjoy that extra hour of sleep <laughs> we didn't have anybody show up early so i guess everybody's you know all these all these now self-setting uh phones and watches and clocks. Just get the job done. Well, this is our next to last message uh, in this great epistle of 2 Corinthians. God willing, we will wrap up this series next Sunday with the last four verses of this chapter, Uh, and that will serve as an excellent launch pad for us to to look next Sunday at the big themes, the, the major lessons of this great epistle. After that, we plan to do a short series on what the Bible tells us about baptism. Uh, Every now and then, that's a theme that we need to revisit, and uh, it's been a while since we since we talked about that. As we've seen previously in this study, when Paul was writing this letter, he was anticipating a third visit to the the saints in the city of Corinth. His first visit had been the longest. You find it. Uh, recorded in Acts chapter 18. It had been during that first year and a half long stay in Corinth that God had given birth to the church in that city through the faithfulness of the Apostle Paul and his co-workers. This was a thriving Roman city. And there were many people and there was great affluence. And as we've seen, uh, Corinth in very many ways was much like Dallas is today. Paul's second visit to Corinth had been unplanned and unpleasant. During a lengthy stay in Ephesus, Paul had received a very troubling report from Timothy, who was in Corinth, about an insurrection against Paul's apostolic authority uh, and thus against the authority of Christ that uh, was being incited by men who had outsiders who had come in amidst the Christians in Corinth. Because the Corinthian believers had utterly failed to nip that mutiny in the bud and to deal decisively with the men who had, uh, had incited it, Paul had made an unplanned trip to Corinth. It was an adversarial visit, and it was short. Soon after that painful visit, Paul sent what we have referred to over and over as the severe letter. It's not a letter that made it into the canon of Scripture. But he refers to it twice in chapter 2 and chapter 8 of this epistle. In that that severe letter, Paul harshly rebuked the leaders and others in the church at Corinth for failing to protect the flock of God from such a grievous threat. Paul called the church to repent and to manifest that repentance by, by putting the rebellious men out of their midst. As we saw in chapter 8 of this letter, God had graciously used that severe letter, Paul's severe letter, to bring about the repentance that Paul desired and prayed for in the congregation at Corinth. When Titus then met up with Paul in Macedonia to report what had happened in Corinth after Titus had delivered that severe letter from Paul, that report had been caused for great rejoicing by Paul and his co-workers. The ringleader of the mutiny had been disciplined by the Corinthian saints, and the saints themselves had made their great love for Paul abundantly clear, uh, both by their words and by their actions. And Titus, when he met up with Paul, he he was delighted, and so Paul in turn was delighted. But there is much internal evidence that Paul did not write this letter of 2 Corinthians quickly. He wrote it over a period, an extended period of time. After that first good report from Titus and before Paul finished this letter, it appears that Paul had again received news that things were heading in a bad direction in the Corinthian church. Men whom Paul in chapter 11 calls Deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ had again come into the midst of the believing community bearing harsh accusations against the Apostle Paul. But far worse than their indictments against Paul was the fact that they were propagating false and heretical doctrine. At the beginning of chapter 11, we saw that Paul said that these false apostles were preaching another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel, a different gospel than these saints had received from Paul. They were teaching heretical doctrine that would be ruinous to anyone who accepted it. Now, it's against that context that the forcefulness of Paul's words in this final chapter of corinthians of second corinthians must be understood he begins chapter 13 by saying this is the third time i am coming to you and then he says i'm just going to blank that out and then he says every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses now that that statement should have gotten their attention <laughs> because at least some of them knew where that came from. Paul was citing a well-known ordinance from the law of Moses found in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. The verse says, a single witness shall not rise up against a man or on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses a matter shall be confirmed. That command applied not to private rebukes but to public trials typically held in the cities of refuge for serious crimes and offenses to address very serious accusations that were, that were made by someone in Israel against someone else. The accused would stand before the high priest and the elders of the city and both sides would make their case before a judgment was then rendered Now in the verses that come right after that one in Deuteronomy 19, God gives these clear instructions about what Israel was to do if someone was found to have borne false witness against a fellow Israelite. In other words, if a trial like that occurred and somebody was making baseless and false accusations against another another person. Listen to these verses. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have had the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. And the judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him, you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from from among you. False witness was considered a a terrible violation of the character of God. And then it says, and the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. That's the goal. And then it says, thus you shall not show pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now when we hear those words, we usually think, Think of that as kind of the initial sentence for someone who's been convicted of a crime. If they they took somebody's eye out, then their eye gets taken out. But what this is saying is if the penalty for the crime that you accused somebody of was for them to lose a hand, then your hand came off. Now, Israel didn't practice mutilation of the body as a sentence for crime, but God speaking through Moses is making the point that, that He will demand He will demand of the accuser whatever penalty applied to the accused, no matter how severe it is, even life for life. That's a pretty tough standard. Uh, If you were were an Israelite who bore false witness against your, your brother, there were no loopholes, there were no plea bargains, there was just the full weight of the punishment for that crime on your own head. Now imagine how different Court cases would look some of them in in this country if that standard were rigorously applied. Do you think witnesses might be more careful and more truthful with their testimonies if they knew that the full penalty for the crime that they alleged would fall upon their own heads if the judge determined that they were not being truthful? People have spent 20 and 30 years in prison Because somebody swore that that was the one that they saw do something when that was not the one that they saw do something. When you get right down to it, the reason that that eyewitness testimony is considered one of the lower levels of, of proof in our courts is because people aren't adequately held accountable for bearing false witness. Now, Paul knew that this same standard applied to himself, but this was a two-edged sword that Paul had no fear in wielding. He would entertain no accusation against his own accusers unless two or three witnesses could confirm that they they had said and done the things that, that they were alleged to have said and done. And if he, Paul, was found to have uttered any accusation against any of them that could not be substantiated by Two or three witnesses, then he would be the one who should face the ostracism of the church, who should be put aside, which is the penalty that he was calling for. Which would, of course, cost have cost him his apostleship. Now, Paul is not talking here again. He's not talking about a private rebuke. When he's he's saying, "When I come to you," he's not saying I'm going to take some of you aside and hold you accountable. He's saying we're going to have a trial in the body of Christ. And those who have failed to repent of serious sins will be held accountable before the entire Christian community in Corinth and in the eyes of God. Paul goes on to say in verse 2 of chapter 13, I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone I believe the reason that Paul includes everyone in the in the Corinthian Christian community in this warning is because the church in Corinth had done such an abysmal job of exercising godly church discipline read Matthew 18 to see the, the course that Jesus the path that Jesus commanded if there was an unrepentant sin this church had not, done, had not followed that path at all. Uh, they were all guilty, if not directly, then indirectly, of participating in sins that presented a serious threat to the purity of God's spiritual household because they had allowed false teachers, not only had there been manifold kinds of sins that are fairly common and still violation, all violations of God's character, But they had allowed false teachers into their midst and not done anything about it. At the end of chapter 12, look again for a moment at the kinds of sins that Paul mentioned in the last few verses of that chapter. In verse 20, chapter 12, he spoke of sins that devastate relationship. Strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances, Then in verse 21, he expressed this same deep concern over the failure of some to repent from sexual sins. Impurity, immorality, sensuality. Now in chapter 13, he's going to come to the one sin in Corinth from which all of that rotten fruit proceeds. And that is when Christians believe things that are false. Right after saying that no one will be spared when he comes back to Corinth, Paul says, you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me. In other words, you're putting me to the test. And who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we are also weak in him, yet we shall live with him because of the power of God toward you. We shall all live together with Him because of the power of God toward you. Now, that's a very positive statement in the midst of what looks negative, and that's very important. In these two verses, verses 3 and 4, Paul is coming right back to a the theme that has pervaded this book God's power manifested and perfected in man's. Weakness. We've seen this over and over. That theme pervades this letter, and that same truth, the power of God perfected in the weakness of men, is the very foundation upon which Paul's heartfelt appeal in this passage is grounded. By this point, some of the Corinthian believers had been persuaded by the false apostles to demand proof of Christ in Paul of confirmation that he was indeed the true apostle that Christ had sent to the Gentiles. The false apostles were claiming that they were the authentic representatives of Christ and that Paul was not. Paul's defense of his apostolic authority is the same in this passage as it has been all along. That defense over and over has been to point to the power of God that had already worked through Paul's weakness to mightily and miraculously transform these saints. Paul's weaknesses did not disqualify him from serving as Christ's apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, Paul's weaknesses were prerequisites. They were job requirements for that role. That same power of God that worked through Paul's weakness had been put on display in and through these saints over and over in one soul after another and in that community. The Corinthians were the proof of Paul's authenticity as Christ's ambassador. In chapter 3, that's what he told them, right? He said, I don't need a letter of commendation from you, from anyone because you are you are our letter he said <laughs> he said you are a letter of commendation from God written in the hearts of human beings this is the greatest commendation that could ever exist now he points out that all of this follows marvelously from what was true of Jesus he says for indeed Jesus was crucified because of weakness yet he lives because of the power of god We also are weak in Him, yet we shall live together with Him because of the power of God directed toward you. The word with, we shall live together with, it means together corporately. Not just me with Christ, but us together with Christ. He's saying all of us, you, me, my co-workers, we're weak in Christ. We're all weak. I'm as weak as you are. Yet we will all live together with Christ because of the power of God that has been at work in you. You've seen it. You know it. It is in the context of that great theme of God's power perfected in men's weakness that verse 5 is seen to make wonderful sense. I find it utterly amazing how often verse 5 of chapter 13 has been used as a bludgeon to scare Christians into behaving better so they can actually know that they're saved. Friends, that's not how this works. Behaving better is not how you know that you're saved. And that approach to verse 5 violates both the language and the stated purpose of this critically important exhortation to every generation of God's redeemed. Here's verse 5. Listen carefully. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. In the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Let me read that again. Do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now, when Paul says test yourselves to see that you are in the faith, he's not talking about a test of performance. He's talking about a test of doctrine. Are they in the body of truth that He delivered to them? That Christ delivered to him? Because He's he's already said, He said to the Galatians, if you're not, you're anathema. If you're bringing a gospel other than the one that Christ, the resurrected, ascended Christ, gave to me and to all His apostles, then you're accursed. Everything that He said about sin... And sins that need to be repented of comes back to this. Godly living proceeds from right believing. Godly living proceeds from right believing. And so what Paul is saying to these saints is look again at what you believe. Is it the word of the cross which I have presented throughout both of these letters as the wisdom of God and the power of God and the righteousness of God given to men? That one and only true way for men to be reconciled to God? Or is it the other Christ? The other Spirit? The other Gospel that's being preached by these false apostles? What is it that you believed? And believe. Now, friends, I need you to listen to me. Please. Please what we must understand here is that Paul's very confident expectation here is not that these saints will fail this test but they will pass but that they will pass it and I'll explain why i believe that very strongly Paul's assertion and expectation is that these saints whom he loves as his own as his own spiritual children will not ultimately fall to the lies of the false apostles And that great confidence is firmly grounded in only one thing. The power of God toward weak people. That's where his confidence comes from. Not the performance of the Corinthians. If you don't like it when preachers talk about original languages, you're going to have to bear with me for a few minutes because this is really important. In the in the phrase that most English translations render here as unless indeed you fail the test, the part of that that says unless indeed translates a Greek phrase which is a meti. A means if, or in some cases unless, and that's what fits best here. Danker's Greek-English lexicon says that the word Métis is, quote, a marker frequently used in questions containing a strong component of considering any answer other than a negative, quite incredulous. You get what he's saying? He's saying that that word Métis is used when the expected answer to the question at hand is going to be a negative answer. Freeberg's lexicon, one of the other of the the most often used lexicons by Bible expositors, godly Bible expositors, says of the same word, Métis, that it is, quote, an interrogative particle, that means it's asking a question, used when expecting an emphatic negative answer, often left untranslated or translated in such a way as to indicate that a negative answer is expected. Examples, surely not. Probably not. Are you with me so far? Okay. The word Métis is not applied to the question in the first half of verse 5. Okay? It It is not applied to do you not know that Christ is in you? It is applied to do you fail the test? Are you with me? The expected negative answer applies to the question, do you fail the test? Two of the most trusted Greek-English lexicons used by Bible-believing preachers say the same thing, and they're not the only ones. The point of putting that word in this place, in this verse, is to make it emphatically clear that the expected answer to the question at hand is a negative answer. What is the question? The question is, will the Corinthians fail this test of right belief? And the answer expected by the specific wording that Paul uses is, surely they will not fail the test. You with me? Is that important? And the proof to Paul of that answer will come in the form of how this church deals with the men who are teaching falsehood. That's where he's going to see it play out. There are many other passages that use this same word, Métis, in which there's a crystal clear and emphatic expectation of a negative answer to the question at hand. I want to give you a couple of examples. Matthew 26, right after Jesus told the twelve disciples that one of them was about to betray Him. Remember that? Verse 22 says they, the disciples, being deeply grieved, each one began to say to Christ, surely not I, Lord. Now the Greek that's translated surely not I is meti ego emi. Ego emi means I am. Meti means surely not. So Jesus says one of you is going to betray me and the disciples say surely not I Lord. Here in 2 Corinthians 13.5 a woodenly literal I'm going to give you another example in a minute but a woodenly literal translation of the Greek would be unless, surely not, you failed the test. Unless, surely not, you failed the test. The only other verse that I could find in the New Testament where the exact same structure, unless surely not, is used, is in Luke's account of the feeding of the five thousand in Luke chapter nine. A crowd of somewhere around twenty thousand people is gathered to listen to Jesus. The five thousand, by the way, were just the adult males, not counting the men and the women and the children. As the sun begins to go down, the twelve disciples tell Jesus to send the multitude away, so they don't have to go without a meal. And the place that it says the place that they were where this gathering had occurred was desolate. Jesus said to the disciples, no, you give them something to eat. I think maybe he was testing the faith of his disciples, just like the rest of of that group. (laughs) You give them something to eat. And here's where the unless surely not part comes in. The disciples respond to Jesus, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless, (laughs) surely not, we go and buy food for all these people. For 20,000 at least. 20,000 people. You think they had enough money to do that? Read the Gospels about how much money Jesus and His 12 disciples carted around. In light of all this, here's how I would render 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you. Surely, you don't fail that test, do you? Are you with me? This is important. We must not conclude that Paul assumes that these saints will fail when everything else he has said to them since the first chapter of 1 Corinthians and what he says right here in this passage demonstrates the opposite. He knows they will not fail. And that great confidence has never been grounded in anything that proceeds from them. It has always been grounded only in the power of God toward them. Which is exactly where Paul's focus is firmly fixed right here in this passage. It is the same power that throughout this letter has given Paul such unwavering confidence of his own usefulness to Jesus. It doesn't have anything to do with him. It has to do with the power of God. False apostles have come into the church at Corinth preaching another gospel, another Christ, another spirit. Paul's forceful appeal to the Corinthian saints here is look again at what you know and believe to be true about Jesus and be done once and for all with such men. Put them away! His forceful words here to the Corinthian saints remind me very much of his equally forceful words to the Galatian saints who were in the midst of a similar situation in Galatians chapter 1. He said, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ. Now, if, he called, if they were called by the grace of Christ, were they Christians or not Christians? They're Christians because a few verses later, Paul talks about how the, the time when he himself was called by the grace of Christ. And that was when God, when Jesus blinded him to make him see. Turned him from a murderer of Christians to a lover of Jesus. I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are, listen, only there are some who are disturbing you. And who want to distort the Gospel of Christ? There are people who have come into your midst and they're messing with your heads. And he says, but even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a Gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a Gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. I didn't accidentally repeat myself. Paul did. Paul repeated himself. Paul was deeply concerned because of the heresy of the Judaizers who were telling both Jews and Gentiles in Galatia that in order to be real Christians, they had to know and observe the law of Moses. Those false teachers were corrupting the gospel of free and unmerited grace. When Paul wrote those words to the Galatian saints, whom he says have been called by the grace of Jesus just as he had been, his fear was not that they would actually abandon the true gospel and somehow lose their salvation. Because of the power of God, that is not possible for a redeemed saint. In 1 Peter 1, verse 5, Peter says that all who belong to Christ are, quote, protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Protected how? Through faith. The one who keeps you in faith is God, not you. Eternal security is one of the bedrock doctrines of the Christian faith. There are a lot of people out there calling themselves Christians who deny the security of the believer. All right. I've got to move fast here. And Paul's fear for the Galatians was that this disturbance being created by the Judaizers, this distortion of the Gospel of Christ would cause those who had received Christ by faith to attempt to walk in Christ by works. Read Galatians. That's what's going on. Here in this final chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul is reminding these dear saints one last time of the power of God toward His redeemed ones just as he did in the first chapter of the first letter to the Corinthians. All the way back in that chapter, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul said to these same saints, listen, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking any gift, but you are awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall also confirm you to the end. The one who confirmed His testimony in you will confirm you to the end. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord The one who guarantees that you who have put your trust in Jesus will be presented blameless in His sight on the last day is God and no one else. He's not waiting for you to make that happen. Paul is saying that his testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in the Corinthians by God's doing. Thus bringing them out of the darkness and into the light of Christ forever. And by God's doing, God would confirm them to the end who began, he who began a good work and then would complete that work. Now Paul knows that the false apostles are not going to succeed in drawing any saint into unbelief because only because of God's miraculous power towards those whom he has saved. Please understand, I am not saying at all that there were no unbelievers mixed in with the community of believers in Corinth. We know for certain that there were. Because Paul's been talking about them several times in the last few chapters. Men preaching another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel, false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ whose end shall be according to their deeds. There's no question these guys are unbelievers. Right? Paul had a lot to say about such men, but friends, please hear me. Paul is not writing this letter or any of his other letters to those people. He's writing to the saints, the holy ones of God. And he says so at the beginning of each of his letters. His forceful appeal to the saints whom he loves with a pure and godly love is put these false teachers away from you now. And in fact, he's saying, please do it before I come so that when I do come, my visit can be filled with joy for me and for you. That's what I desire with all my heart. That's Paul's appeal in this passage. That's the, the very heart and essence of Paul's appeal in this passage. Deal with this, beloved. You know who you believe. Deal with this now so that when I come, we don't have to have a tribunal. We can have communion and fellowship and rejoicing. In verses 6-9, to nine, Paul turns one last time to his defense of his own ministry and his own ministry integrity and and that of his co-workers he says but I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test now we pray to God that you do no wrong not that we ourselves may appear unapproved but that you may do what is right even if we should appear unapproved for we can do nothing against the truth but only for the truth see it all comes back to the doctrine People who hate the word doctrine don't spend much time in the scriptures. He says, We rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you may be made complete. It should have been abundantly evident to these saints that Paul and his co workers passed with flying colors the test of holding firmly to the one true faith. Unlike the phony apostles, who were seeking to undermine and replace Paul and to teach lies to God's people, Paul and his co-workers could do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. With all of that in mind, we get to the last verse. Paul's purpose statement for this passage. He says, for this reason I am writing these things. love it when he does that, because then you know where the purpose statement is. For this reason I am writing these things, while absent, in order that when present I may not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Back in chapter 2, Paul explained that his reason for delaying his planned visit to Corinth and the reason he had to make an unplanned visit to Corinth was, was to quell a rebellion that had been incited by some against his authority and thus Christ's authority. That, his response on that second visit had not been very good. So rather than coming again during the planned time, he resolved to send a letter rebuking the church for failing to deal with the ringleaders of the rebellion. And I said this before, I'll say this again. Guys, sometimes a letter works better than a face-to-face meeting because it gives people time to ponder and to consider without feeling like they have to re- defend and respond. And sometimes it lets the real face-to-face meeting be a meeting that is joyful. doesn't always work that way, but sometimes it does. The accusations that had come against Paul over and over came from men who did not know Paul's heart. All right, I'm going to skip a little bit, but... I will say that in chapter 2, when he was explaining why he had delayed coming to them again and had instead sent a letter, he said, I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. If I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? And this is the very thing I wrote to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love that I have especially for you. This is the heart of of a tender and loving father toward his spiritual children. The reason for Paul's delay was not cowardice. It was love. Godly And tender love. Now as another wave of rebellion was taking root in Corinth, Paul explains again why he's writing forceful words rather than delivering them in person. And it is because he desires that repentance will happen before he comes and there can be nothing but rejoicing and fellowship when he does come. This is the heart of a lover of God's people. And this is the heart to which God calls every one of us. I mentioned, uh, almost done here, I mentioned before that church today is no more and no less full of messy people than the church was in Paul's day. I don't mean that no church is doing any better than any other church. In Christ's letter to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, there are clearly some churches doing better than others. But in the final analysis, beloved, It is the shepherd, not the sheep, who ensures the well-being of God's flock. And we have a really, really good shepherd. Every local church faces many challenges and very many weaknesses. But it is our weakness, it is in our weakness, that the mighty power of God is most clearly put on display. That we can be absolutely certain. God's power is and will be most greatly manifested and perfected in our greatest weakness. In the divine genius and the amazing love of God, that's how the Christian life works. So rejoice, beloved, rejoice. We're going to come back to the last few verses of this chapter next time, but I want to close with them now because they go to that very that very rejoicing. This is our beautiful assignment toward one another and our beautiful promise from God. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Dear Father, we thank You that that, that right there is what You made Your church to experience. That's what You saved us to know. Is that delight in You together arm in arm with one another. Father, make this flock that kind of flock. We ask it in Jesus' magnificent name. Amen.